Father God, we just want to come before you again and just thank you for that beautiful, beautiful promise that you've made to all of our children. God, each time we celebrate baptism, we pray that, that you move in each of us, whether we were baptized and, and have to remember what that means, what, that, what it means for you to love us as well, or whether, it mean, or whether we focus on, on the, your love that we have for our children. God, we pray that ultimately we always have you right in front of our minds. God, in just a few minutes, we're going to approach your scripture, and we're going to wrestle with some difficult things, and we pray that you meet each of us this morning, that as we, as we look at your word, as we hear what you have to say to us, uh, that it, they may not just be words written on a page, but words that are alive and active because your spirit is in them. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Matthew, and the, more, the, the further we get into this book, the more fascinating the life of Jesus is to me, and I hope he is to you too. I hope you've enjoyed our, our walk through Matthew this year as we've been able to kind of see Jesus' ministry uh, grow and expand. We've seen, we've, we've, we started way back in, in December, and, what, and we've been able to look at all of the different themes that run throughout the book. We began with a phrase that I hope that even a year from now, after we're out of Matthew, uh, that you won't forget, because it's one that we say each and every week. We realize the first words of Jesus' ministry, how he begins his public ministry in the book of Matthew, is with a phrase that kind of helps frame the rest of the book. First words of ministry, or first words of preaching in, in, in the book of Matthew from Jesus' mouth are the phrase, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. Each week we say that phrase again because we realize that that's what Jesus is inviting us into. To repent means to turn. If we're headed in a certain direction, he says there's a better way, so let's turn away from that so that we can have eyes to see that the kingdom of God is all around us. He moves from that space into a, into a series of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount in which he says there are certain ways to live that are compatible and will lead you into that kingdom life, and there are certain things that won't. And so he kind of guides us into what that looks like. We go from there to, uh, to, 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 to seeing him in his life with the, with the kingdom on display, whether it's through his teaching or whether it's through healing or casting out demons or whatever it may be, or feeding, or feeding the, the hungry or comforting the sick. He leads by example, showing us what it looks like to lead a kingdom kind of life. And then we've moved into this mini-series that we're in now. Now, last week, if you were here, we shared a ton of information, and I can't go through it all again this week, unfortunately. You can listen to it online if you want. But one of the things that we talked about last week is, is a literary structure called a chiasm. Maybe you remember that, maybe you don't. If you don't remember it, um, there's a literary structure that's used through a lot of scripture, and it's called a chiasm. The best way to think about it is like an X, right? You start broad, and you start honing in to your main point, which comes right in the middle, and then you start expanding back out. Last week, we saw that the book of Matthew itself is one giant chiasm. Now, there are a bunch of mini chiasms in it as well, but it's one giant chiasm. So last week, we, we, we actually were in the middle of the book of Matthew, the dead center. And we saw how, how, we saw how, we, we, how God's promises were, were, were honing in. So we saw the feeding of the 5,000 in which God recreates what happened in the desert, where we had a group of desperate and hungry people who were in the wilderness, and God fed them. But it makes a turn because God feeds them by multiplying the little bit that the disciples had, and then he says to the disciples, now you go and bring the kingdom to all of these people out there. We then said, the chiasm hits its dead center when Jesus walks on water, 
symbolizing a new kind of creation, right? The Spirit of God hovers over the water in Genesis. God, Jesus literally walks on water and then invites Peter into that recreation process for it to go back out. Because right on the other side, and we will talk more in depth, I said that last week too, about the walking on the water. But we talked about how the other side of the chiasm then is the feeding of the 4,000, in which, in which the blessing that Israel experienced in the desert is now given to the rest of the world. The 5,000 is, is all Jewish people. The 4,000 are all Greeks. And so we see that same blessing of God expanding out into the Greek world so that the kingdom can be in all of those spaces. <clears throat> this week, we're going to continue our journey through Matthew. And this is another week that's got a lot of information. And it's kind of an awkward week because it's, it's kind of rated PG-13. So just a forewarning on that. If I were to be really, really blunt about it, it would be R, but I'm going to try to do my best to euphemize some things. Uh, but it, there's no way else around it if we're going to understand it all the way. So just to quickly remind us where we've been, uh, as we've been walking through Matthew, we've just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people. We've seen him uh, uh, heal the, the daughter of a Canaanite woman. Then we see him feed 4,000 more hungry and hurting people. And we get this little blip inside here uh, that gives us an insight into how the Pharisees and the Sadducees are reacting to all of these things. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not good. They, they, they miss what's going on entirely because, because they have an idea of what the religious structures are supposed to look like. And so instead of rejoicing when they see people fed or people healed, they, they instead get frustrated and begin to try to challenge Jesus and push back on his ministry. But we're not going to talk about that today. We're actually going to jump ahead to Matthew 16, 13. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 16, 13 in, in, in the following verses for most of our time. Because Jesus moves out of that region as the Pharisees and the Sadducees were challenging him, and he goes to this. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, this is one of those verses, and we have this happen here from time to time, that on first read, we get, we get a, a basic understanding, but we miss a lot because we don't understand Caesarea Philippi, Right? So I want to take a little bit of time to kind of paint you the picture of the location that we're in here, because it matters a whole lot to how we understand the rest of the story. So first, Reese, if you could throw up this map. Where we are, uh, where we were before, is around the Sea of Galilee. You can see it right there. I've got a little arrow pointing there. We're now going to go north to right up below Syria there on that map. You'll notice a few, diff a few things on this particular map. One is that... That what this map shows are all the regions of Israel uh, or the surrounding areas of the Bible that we're most of the time in. You can see that Samaria is in there in the middle, Judea on the bottom, Galilee on top, and then the Decapolis is where we spend a lot of our time. You'll also notice that Caesarea Philippi isn't in any of those little bubbles, right? Because it's not, it's, it's actually a decent way away from the normal regions of, of Jewish people. Caesarea Philippi is, is an entirely Roman city, and it, it matters a lot for, for, um, for what we're going to talk about in our story here. Because I, you have to imagine that on the way to Caesarea, um, sorry, me, sorry, I lost my spot there for a second. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples a minute as we're going to talk about this particular city. So you've been, the disciples at, at this particular point in time have been traveling with Jesus for about two years. So they've seen a lot of what he's, what he's done. They, um, 
They followed him wherever he, he goes. They've seen this, they, like all the things we just mentioned. They've seen people fed. They've seen the, the, the sick healed. They've, they've heard his teaching. They realize that he's different, that he's, one, a phenomenal rabbi, but he's probably even more than just that. Now, the disciples are all young men. They're, they're probably the oldest. is probably 18, 19 years old. And most of them come from small farming towns, which are just consist of family units. Actually, if you want to throw up the next picture, Reese. This, these are, that right there is the ruins of Bethsaida, Bethsaida, right? And you'll notice a few things about it. It does not look like a big metropolitan city. It looks like a bunch of very small houses if you were to build those up. And that's because that's all it is. There's probably somewhere between a couple hundred to 800 people that would have lived in this little region. Um, but five of our 12 disciples come from that city, come from Bethsaida. Most of them, except for probably Judas and Matthew, are only used to these little small fishing or farming towns. That's what they know. So if you put yourself in, in the shoes of the disciples, one day Jesus says, hey, let's go for a walk. And he does it all the time, so you start to follow him. You're no big deal. But then as he starts walking, you realize something. You're headed north. You're leaving the Jewish territories and you're heading into the Roman world. And then you begin to realize that you're headed straight for Caesarea Philippi. And you start to get anxious because any good Jewish boy knows you don't go to Caesarea Philippi. Any good Jewish mother, aunt, grandmother knows you keep your kids away from Caesarea Philippi at all costs. You see, Caesarea Philippi was, one of, was, a, was a really interesting city in the ancient world. I mentioned that it was entirely Greek but it was also known for something else really specific. It was the kind of city that people told stories about, not good ones. It was the kind of, kind of story that is like Las Vegas on steroids. Why? Well, see, during the time of Jesus, Caesarea Philippi was a city on the rise. After Herod the Great dies, he actually divides his kingdom up among his three sons. Reese, if you actually want to throw up the, the next slide there. And we see at the top, we have the Tetrarchy of Philip, and that's where Caesarea Philippi goes. So it's one of, one of uh, Herod's sons rules in the northern part of Israel there. Now, King Philip, was each, each of Herod's sons kind of took a different approach in how they wanted to, to rule. Well, Philip's approach was, uh, he thought the, the best way to get ahead is to get really close with Caesar. Now, some of, the, some, of, some of the Israelite kings actually tried to keep their distance because they realized that might be better for, for the Jewish people. But not Philip. Philip went all in. He says, I, if I'm going to succeed, I hitch my wagon to Rome. I hitch my wagon to Caesar. And so one of, one of the ways he wanted to do that uh, was by rebuilding a city. So Philip decides early on in his life that he is going to rebuild the city of Benaeus. So he does, he rebuilds the city, but he's going to rebuild this city as a tribute and, as a, and in order to honor Caesar in Rome. So he rebuilds the city and he does it in a grand and wonderful way and then he names it after Caesar himself. He names it Caesarea. Now, if in the ancient world, there were a number of cities named Caesarea, so in order to make sure that yours got noticed, you'd add a little tag to it. So you have Caesarea Maritima, which is by the water, so, that's, so you realize that's the Caesarea by the water built by his father, Herod, Herod the Great. Well, this one, he wants Caesar to know who built this particular one, so he names it Caesarea Philippi after himself, right? So in honor of Caesar, 
given to you by Philip. Now, as you can imagine, if you're trying to build a city to honor Caesar, you make it grand, and he did. Actually, here's a picture. I was in Caesarea Philippi last year, uh, and it's beautiful. So actually, the, there, there's a river. That's, this is actually one of the springs for the Jordan River that comes out of this particular area. Uh, what's really cool is there's actually plumbing that runs underneath your walkways, right? So he, he actually engineered some pretty amazing things. So as you're walking on these old stone roads, you can see the edges of it there, you actually will see from the ancient time that some of the river actually flows underneath the sidewalk that you're on, which is a pretty cool thing for the ancient world, right? So he builds this grand, beautiful, big city. Now the next question we ask, though, is then why would he build it there, though? Why was this particular location where he wanted to be? Now most historians believe he picked this location because this location could be an economic uh, win for him as well. Because there was a festival, a major festival in the Roman world that happened here every single year. It was the festival to honor the god Pan. People would gather in this particular spot to throw a wild, week, multiple week long party every single year. And so, so Philip thought, if I can build a city here to capitalize on all of those people coming in every year, I can honor Caesar and I can make some money in the, in the process. So he built this amazing city, and, top, and along with that, he built an amazing temple to the god Pan. So if you want to throw up the next one, this is an artist's rendition of what it would have looked like during Jesus' day. On the left, you can see there's a, that'll, that'll matter. Pay attention to that. Um, that is where you would start in your worship celebration and then progressively move to the right, and we'll talk about each, all of that. So that's what it would look like in Jesus' day. Actually, if you want to flip to the next picture... That's what it looks like today. So you can kind of imagine those two things on top of each other there. The buildings are gone, uh, but you still have the footings there and that big cave um, that actually would have extended out further. Some of that broke off as well. So he builds a temple to the god Pan. Now, who is Pan? This is important for our story as well. Pan is a half-goat, half-man god. There's a picture of Pan right there. Maybe you've seen that before. <clears throat> Now, uh, he's, so Pan is the god of the wild. Now, you might be thinking, when you first think of the god of the wild, where my mind goes first is to think of the god of nature, right? Just the wild nature out there, of trees and flowers and all those beautiful things. Now, in one sense, yes, Pan is the god of those things in the Roman world, but it's better to think about it as the wild in the sense of like, uh, of, of the power of nature. So like the wild of the storm or the wild of animal brute strength or the wild of passions, right? Whether it's rage or anger or sensuality or lust. Pan is the god of passion and wildness. Pan encourages you to, to tap into the raw energy that you possess, whatever that might look like. And so Caesarea Philippi then is the center of Pan worship. The city was built around the temple to Pan, like we just said. And each day, priests would, would, would perform a ceremony to honor Pan. And then that, that same ceremony would be practiced by the entirety of the population each year during the festival. Now you can imagine, if you're worshiping the god of passions, the god that encourages you to just follow whatever animalistic instinct you have. You can imagine that 
his celebration wasn't subtle or subdued, right? See, Caesarea Philippi was known for its wild parties. And this is the point where it gets a little R-rated. I'm giving you the warning. I'm going to do my best, like I said. So the question is, how do you worship Pan? Well, you start by going into the first part of Pan's temple. We saw that in the big picture. Reese, can you throw up the, the artist picture again? That's actually it in real life. You could, we're talking about the building on the far left. So you go in there. You want to flip back to the other one, Reese, that you were just on? And that's what it looks like today. And so you, go, you walk into the building and into the back of this big cave. You then sit in this cave and wait. You sit there and just continue to wait until you believed you were filled with the spirit of Pan. They believed that they, if they sat there long enough, Pan's spirit would enter them and enlighten them, and then they would go out and worship. Now, why would they think that? Well, there's two reasons. Reese, can you throw up the next picture? First reason is you see that rock there in the middle? During the time of Jesus, during Jesus' day, actually the river that we saw in that first picture used to flow out from right underneath that rock. So this, is, this was the, one of the springs that feeds the Jordan River, and the river would flow out from underneath that rock down into the city uh, where, it would, where you feed and water the, the population there. So you believe that this is the spot you want to be because this is where life comes from, right? Water gives life and, wa and, light and water is coming from there. And so Pan is giving you continual water from this particular spot. So the water used to flow out from underneath that rock. It doesn't anymore. There was an earthquake in the 19th century which knocked off the front of the cave and rerouted the water. So the water still runs through the city, but it actually comes out from underneath the cave now, not in it, which is too bad because it would have been cool to see, but it just doesn't do that anymore. And so you sat there because you believed uh, that life was there. But there was another reason they believed this location was special too. Now we had mentioned they, they sat there until they believed they were filled with the spirit of Pan. Now you might be thinking, well, that was just an, some, it must have been some kind of delusion or illusion that they, f they just believed that this thing was happening. It couldn't obviously be doing anything for real. Uh, but we're not so sure about that, actually. Um, while investigating this site... Archaeologists found that out of the hole that's underneath that rock where the spring used to come from is also a slow methane leak, right? So that, so that methane would come up under the ground with the water. So your water would come out and also little bubbles of methane. So essentially, what's believed then is as you sat in that closed cave by the water, you would begin to get high, right? The meth you would breathe in the methane and you begin to actually get stoned, Right? And so they'd come down, so the worshipers would go into the temple, they would sit down there and, and wait till the Spirit entered, and as they inhaled this methane, they'd slowly begin to get high. We know then that they believe that, they believe that, we know that it was probably methane making them high, they believe they were being filled with the Spirit of Pan. Now one more quick thing before we move on beyond this cave here. This cave had a special name as well. See, they believed that, uh, so in the ancient world, they believed that, uh, both that, that's, that spirits would come out of the depths, right? Um, in, in the Roman world, the depths then were known as Hades, right, or hell. Spirits come out of hell. So if you're going to be sitting there waiting for the spirit to enter you and you realize that it keeps coming up out of this giant, giant hole in the ground and that's where the spirit of Pan comes from, you believe then that if you were to file that hole all the way to the bottom, you would end up in Hades, right? 
you would end up in hell. Um, they wouldn't think of it as hell like we do. They'd think of it as Hades. And so they actually would refer to this particular location as the gate of Hades, right? So just remember that for a minute because it's going to come back in a minute in our story as well. So this was known as the gate of Hades. All right, so we'll keep going. Uh, so you sit in the cave and you waited for Pan, Pan to fill you with your spirit. You, you get high. Uh, so Pan has filled you. So now what? Well, at this point, you leave the cave and engage in the wild party that was going on around you uh, as a way of thanking Pan for the gift of his spirit. And this is where things start to get really messed up. Because each day, the priest would begin the celebration by walking through the city. Now, you might think, well, that's not a big deal. Except he'd walk through the city with a six-foot stone part of a male anatomy, right? So that's the way that that it began. You'd walk through the city that way, uh, signifying that Pan is now here and we're going to celebrate him in that, with that particular thing. Now, you can imagine that that would be interesting. Um, there, actually are, we, there actually are a lot of carvings of it all over Caesarea Philippi. I'm not going to show any of them because uh, they're graphic, but it's not, they're not hard to find if you go online. See, the people believe that Pan gave them life. He gave them water. He gave them the beautiful land around them. He filled them with their spirits, with his spirits, and then gave them all of their passions. So they worshipped Pan inside of those passions. So they'd get filled, they'd walk through the city with that on display, and then they believed that they had to then exercise whatever passion they may have. Now, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine what that might have been like. A bunch of people who are high, thinking that they need to express their passions. If you go back to the picture that we had of the artist's rendition, for a second, that the building on the right there would have been filled with priestesses who are more than happy to help you fulfill your passions, if you get what I mean. And so you'd go from this first place in the left, you'd, move, you'd work over to the right where you could join the celebration, you could go into the brothel slash temple on the right there uh, and begin worshiping Pan. Now that, you might think, would be bad enough on its own, uh, but it doesn't and there either. And this, I don't even know how to say this in the right way. So if it doesn't, I'm going to, um, you could worship God in the, or worship Pan in this particular way, but Pan was a goat. Just use your imagination to fill that out, right? So the priestesses would help you out, but then there was also a stable nearby. It's a messed up city, right? There's a reason you don't take your kids to Caesarea Philippi because this kind of thing was happening daily and during the annual celebration, it was happening with everybody all day for months. It's crazy, horrible, wild stuff. You worship the god Pan by giving into your most animalistic form of your passions. And you, so now you can completely understand why no good Jewish boy goes to Caesarea Philippi. Walking up on that, that celebration would be jarring. I can imagine the disciples coming up over the hill and just going, Jesus, what are we doing here? Actually, the, the word pandemonium, right, which is kind of like, you know, guys know what that means, the chaos there, is deriv driven from this practice. Pan is the root of pandemonium. It actually means uh, to, uh, it is wildness associated with pan worship. Is the, is the core meaning of pandemonium. It's also where the word panic comes from, where you get all riled up and you're just completely overwhelmed with your emotional passion. 
Panic literally means fear inspired by pan. So both of those two words just give you an insight into how people viewed pan. One final kind of image just to kind of lock in this, this, um, this idea of pan. Have you ever wondered why, the, why in medieval art uh, the devil is, is, uh, is depicted as a goat? You ever thought about that? Um, if you actually read through the scripture, you'll never find the Bible referring to the devil in any kind of goat form at all. The horns, the tail, any, all of that is not from scripture. Where does it come from? Reese, can you throw up the picture of Pan one more time? A little bit of adjustment. Does it take a lot of imagination to just turn that into what those medieval ideas of Satan were? It doesn't, does it? You see, in the ancient world, when the, when the, when the medieval believers were trying to, to, to think of the worst possible God they could think of to depict Satan as, they thought of Pan. They couldn't imagine anything being more depraved or more messed up than what was happening in pan worship. So with all of those things in mind then, when we set the stage like that, we go back to our text today because location, like we said, matters so much. So Jesus takes his disciples here to Caesarea Philippi. Now, I'd love to be a fly on the wall to kind of go through what the disciples were thinking at this point, right? They, as they started to realize where they're going, they're probably whispering to each other, Mom is going to be so mad. Like, what are we doing here? And yet, that's where they go. And this is how the interaction takes place. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the reason of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I can tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So what's Jesus doing here? Why would he take his disciples to this particular city to make this particular point? Now, when we understand where we are, in the passage, two things jump out at us right away. First, rocks. We saw the rock in the cave, right? And the gates of Hades. Both of those things we've already mentioned. So let's talk about both for just a second. The rock first. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, to the place of pan worship, where a rock in a cave is where it all begins. And he says to them, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, over the years, there's been quite a few debates on what Jesus actually meant when he said that. The first understanding, what, what, or, sorry, what kind of rock is Jesus referring to? The first understanding might be that he's referring to Jesus, or Peter himself. Right? The name Peter actually means rock, actually closer to small pebbles, but you get it, still in the same family here. And so what, what, the, what the belief was then is that what Jesus is saying is that on you, Peter, I will build my church. Do we have any former Catholics or still Catholics here? Yeah? So in the Catholic church, who's the first pope? Peter, right. It's Peter, right? So that they, actually in Catholic tradition, Jesus builds his church on Peter, the first pope. Right? The whole papal structure is built on that understanding of what it means uh, to be the rock. 
Now, of course, there is some validity to that understanding. Obviously, Jesus does build his church using his people and his disciples. There is some validity to what that might be. But, there's, but, there, are, but there are other arguments as well. Other people say the rock might just be Peter's statement, right? That it isn't Peter himself, it's the declaration that he's just made that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In other words, then the church is built on the centrality of Jesus being Christ as Lord. Now, obviously, we can see the validity in that too, right? Of course, we do build our church around Christ as the center. I think both of those understandings carry weight, and they both probably have some truth to them as well. But I think we can see after this morning there's a third layer here too. Pan worship began in a cave with a stone where water and methane gas would come out and where the spirit of Pan would fill his followers to begin the pandemonium that would happen in the city. Jesus takes his disciples here to say to them, here is where I'm going to build my church. In cities like this, in places like this, if you want to follow me, I want you to put a church here. I want my movement, the kingdom kind of life, to in infiltrate places like this. In other words, he's saying to the disciples, I'm going to need you to go to places like this, to people like this, to people who are hurting and confused, so confused, they're bowing down to goats. To follow me is going to be to go to them. On this rock, on the rock of Pan, the kingdom's going to come. We talked a little bit about rocks, now about gates as well. On this rock, I'll build my church, and in this place, in this kind of place, I'll build my church. And then he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, I don't know about you, my first original understanding, the way it was taught to me back in the day, was that, uh, is that, was this way, is that the church may be pressed on by all sides. The, the enemy may try to take it down, but it will never overcome it. The church won't fall, or, or I won't fall if I'm protected by God. Does anybody else have that understanding? Yeah. I want to propose, though there are lots of places in Scripture that do say that God will protect us and watch over us, I don't think this is one of those places. Hear me out on this one. If you're going to attack someone, do you use gates? Are gates an offensive or defensive structure? They're defensive, right? Nobody goes and attacks a city with a gate in their hand. That's not how it works. The gates of Hades will not overcome it is not the, the enemy being the offender, right? That's just not how it works. You don't assail a city with gates. Gates are used for defense. So then what is Jesus saying? Who's the one hiding behind the walls here? It's not us. It's not the church. It's the devil, the walls of, in other words, what Jesus is saying is the walls of Hades will not be able to keep the kingdom out. In this analogy, the church is on offense, not defense. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of heaven is going to storm the gates of hell. The gates of Hades. The church is going to overcome the gates of Hades. In other words, we're called to go to those who are hurting, confused, who are stuck, and storm the walls of that darkness. Which is a totally different understanding, but a pretty empowering one, isn't it? 
He says, if you guys go to places like this, the gates of Hades will not be able to keep you out. Now, I got to imagine that at this particular point, Peter starts to get a little fired up. Right? He's just nailed it. Right? We actually know a whole bunch of people think, thought the wrong thing about who Jesus was. He actually says that. Some people think you're John the Baptist or Jeremiah. But Peter nails it. And so, you, you know, you can imagine him standing up a little tall. And then Jesus gives him that charge and says, hey, places like this are where my church going, and you're going to bring it there, and hell won't be able to stand up against you. You can imagine him, get him start to get a little pumped, right? He's like, yeah, all right, this is great. So let's, let's continue the story then. He's ready to fight. He's ready to storm the castle. And then from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. It's passages like this that make Peter my favorite. Pete's my favorite guy. He, I just relate to him a lot. See, Jesus takes his disciples away from Israel to Caesarea Philippi, this crazy wild city. When they're there, he asks them, who do you people say that I am? And Peter nails it. Like, a lot of people got it wrong, but Pete nails it. And then, then gives the charge from Jesus. Jesus specifically congratulates Peter and tells him the gates of hell aren't going to even be able to stand up against him. Like we said, I got to imagine that Peter's pumped. So then Jesus then goes, as they're starting to leave Caesarea Philippi, he begins walking with them and explaining what it means to actually follow the Messiah. What he says is it's, things are going to get really tough really soon here. That we're going to have to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be persecuted and killed, actually. And that's when we get some insight into Peter's mind. He's all jacked up after Caesarea Philippi, feeling great, ready to storm some gates. And he begins to hear what Jesus is saying. You see, we can tell by his response that what Peter is thinking about storming the gates of hell are similar to the Maccabees, which is what is in most of the Jewish minds when they think of the Messiah. See, the Maccabean re revolution kicked out the Greeks so that the Israelites, or so that the Jewish people could live in autonomy for a little while. But now Rome's there, and so most Jewish people are thinking the Messiah will come and be like the Maccabees, where we're going to storm the gates of hell, we're going to storm Rome and get rid of them, and it's going to be great again. That's what Peter's thinking. And so as the leader of the disciples, it's his job to protect his guy. So he does. He actually does what you would expect the leader of the disciples to do. He takes Jesus and he says, hey, no, I'm not going to let that happen. It's very similar to what he says later on, too. He goes, all of these guys might fall away. I'm not going to. I'm here for you. I got your back. See, and I actually don't, I think we can often give Peter a hard time for that, but I think it, this is such a relatable statement for me. For many of us, if we slow down and look at it, it's what we often do with the church as well. We think in really militaristic terms. We're supposed to be storming the gates. We need to push back on society, fight them. We're supposed to be defending the faith, standing up for what is truth with a big stomping, stomping foot. We're supposed to be fighting, battling, overtaking. We think about it like the Maccabees. We need to retake these spaces for the church. That's what Peter's thinking as well. And so often we make the same kind of statement, but look what happens. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. 
You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can exchange for your soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward everyone according to what they have done. Now, I can't even imagine the emotional roller coaster Peter must have been on today, this particular day. He, the anxiety building as he walks up to Caesarea Philippi, a place he would have never gone otherwise. The pride he feels when he nails the question Jesus asked. The motivation he feels when Jesus says, hey, we're going to storm the gates of hell. He's got, he's got to be pumped. Only to have that almost immediately follow. Or even, even the indignation of say, when Jesus says he's going to die, of him saying, I'm not going to let that happen. To then, minutes after nailing it, having Jesus look at him and call him Satan. That's got to stink a little bit, doesn't it? Just a way high to a re- way low, real, real fast. See, Peter hears what Jesus says at Caesarea Philippi and assumes he knows what he needs to do. I think he's coming from a really good place. He's ready to do the hard work to bring the kingdom to places like Caesarea Philippi. He's ready to take back the world for God. He's ready to fight. The problem is that's not how the kingdom storms the gates. It's how people storm gates. And so as Jesus so often does, he flips the script. He says, Pete, if you're going to storm the gates of, you are going to storm the gates of hell. You're going to push back darkness all over the world, even in places like Caesarea Philippi. But you're not going to do it like the Maccabees. You're not going to do it through force. You're not going to do it through fighting. You're not going to do it through conflict in those ways. That's not how the kingdom works. He says, Pete, if you follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to do it through humility and self-sacrifice. You're going to do it by caring for the least of these. Because that's how you regain the world for the kingdom without losing your soul. Jesus takes his disciples to one of the most messed up cities in the world at the time. To a group of people who have put their faith and trust in a methane leak and believe that the, in, the, in the belief in the spirit of their goat god. Jesus brings them to people who are believing that living out of the, mo, of the most, believe that living out of their most messed up passions is what's going to bring them life. Which anybody, if, anybody who's ever pursued that for any point in their life know that that's not where you find life. Jesus takes his disciples there and asks them, who do you think that I am? He says, if you believe then I'm the Messiah, it's going to mean a few things. It means that you join me on my path, which is death to self, or in Jesus' case, literal death, in order to serve those who are only looking out for themselves. Literally the exact opposite of what Pan does. Pan says, pursue every one of your whims and passions. Jesus says, let all your whims and passions die so that Christ can live in you. But it doesn't stop there. He says, if you believe that I'm the Messiah, 
then you're joining on my mission, which is going to mean you're going to have to take that self-sacrifice to places like this, to here, to Caesarea Philippi, to the most hurting people on earth. Because it's places like this that I want to build my church. It's people like these that I need you to go to and show them that there's a better way. In other words, I need you to storm the gates of hell with the message of the kingdom, to bring life where there's death, through humility and self-sacrifice. I think it's a beautiful picture of the kingdom. It's not the easiest picture of the kingdom, but it's a beautiful one. Now, if you were here with us last year, we spent a little bit of time in the book of Revelation. And we were able to walk through some of the cities in the book of Revelation. What we were able to see is that the early church took that mission incredibly seriously. Just two quick stories that we, we, if you remember from that particular series. In one city, there was, a, there was, there was the temple of Asclepius, who, who actually is, his symbol is the one we actually put on medical things now, the snake with a pole, that's Asclepius. His temple was the biggest hospital in the world, except because they, because they wanted to make sure they had a high success rate, if you were pregnant or old, they wouldn't let you in. You might remember that from the series. They don't, because too many people died in childbirth, so you could not go to the temple of Asclepius. Or if you were old, they might not be able to heal you, so they sent you away. And so a whole bunch of hurting people were, all, were sent away from the temple of Asclepius. What we found is that on the path to the temple were a whole bunch of churches. That's the church taking the mission that Jesus gives to his disciples seriously. They didn't protest Rome. They didn't fight Rome. They just said, hey, for all those people who are being sent away from this temple, we're here for you. We're going to self-sacrifice to bring the kingdom to these dark places. The same thing was true in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis. That's where you went to have your babies, at the temple of Artemis. But if you didn't want them, they were fine just leaving them on the hill in the back of the temple to, to die. Now again, the church didn't fight the system with force, but all around the temple of Artemis are churches. Because the church said, we're going to that space to push back on that darkness. Those babies on those hills can't live there or be taken by slave owners so that they go to brothels and become slaves. We will take them in and raise them and... And the first orphanages came out of those places. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is calling us to. Now, we don't live in a world exactly like Ephesus or like Caesarea Philippi. But I believe we're, we're living in a world that needs the kingdom to break through just as desperately. What would it look like if the church were to put aside all of the garbage we get focused on, it was, it's never been more on display than it was last season. There, if you look at any of the data on church right now, the church declined, and I've said this over and over again, by somewhere between 30 and 50% because people looked at us and go, what is that all about? That doesn't look like this mission. We're arguing about the dumbest things, feeling like we have to defend God some, in, in some really weird and messed up ways. But what would it look like if we got rid of all that and committed to the kind of life that Jesus portrays here with his disciples? What if we decided to take the words of Jesus seriously, the mission that he gave? What if we committed to assailing the gates of hell all around us? Not like the Maccabees, but like the early church did. Where when we see injustice, even if it's self-sacrificing for ourselves, we say we won't tolerate it. 
We run our businesses differently. We interact with people differently. We offer grace and mercy differently. Whenever we see a hellish kind of life, we meet it with love and mercy and patience and an invitation to something better. What would happen if we refused to write people off? What would happen if we radically cared for the well-being of the marginalized around us? What would happen if we proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah and then decided to not live like Pan where we let our own passions drive us? What kind of radical difference would the church make in this world? I think if we started to do those kinds of things, the idea that the gates of hell could not hold us back make a whole lot of sense. Because people are desperate for things like that. Now I want to show you one more picture. Reese, can you throw up that very last one? It's hard to see here, but you see like those boards and things in the back. There's some, you can see a couple holes there and then a little lining uh, of some stones there in the back. That is the mouth of the cave I showed you earlier. Does anybody want to guess what those stones in the hole uh, in, are right there? I've kind of telegraphed it, so somebody should be able to get it. It's a church. So right at the entrance to the, they just recently excavated it. It was in the last three years. At the, at the opening to the cave of Pan is a church, which I think is a pretty cool fulfillment of what Jesus said was going to happen, right? Hey, guys, I need you to go here to bring the kingdom to this kind of place. And the early church said, okay, and literally built a church on the rock in front of the temple of Pan. Friends, we're in a, series, in a season right now where we're thinking about baptism. Now, whether you're thinking about baptism for yourself right now or if you're just remembering back to the time when you were baptized, the symbolism of baptism so perfectly fits with what we're talking about today. Because when you're, when you, when you're when, or professing your faith, when you, when you profess that Jesus is your Lord, the symbol of baptism is then you go under the water to symbolize death, you die to yourself to arise to do the mission that Jesus calls us to. Whenever we're thinking about baptism, it should reinvigorate us to do the thing that we've been called to do. It's a declaration like Peter that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And therefore, we don't live like Pan anymore, following whatever, whatever wild passion we have. Instead, we die to ourselves to be resurrected in Christ, to then bring kingdom kind of life that we find in Jesus to the darkest places on earth. And that's where I want to challenge you today. Maybe you're in a space this morning where, where you have been thinking about baptism and, you want, and this is the time to do it. Are you ready to make that kind of declaration? Who do you think Jesus is? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that brings life to the darkness? If it is, maybe it's time to make that declaration. Maybe it's time then to stand up and live the kind of life he's called you to live. Not because he's not going to love you otherwise, of course not, but because when we do, we actually become a force that the gates of hell can't overcome. Maybe today, you've already been baptized, but it's time to remember it. To remember the commitment you made then and live into it in a new way now. To die to yourself again so that we can assail the gates of hell in the way that Jesus has called us to. So we can see the dark places of this world begin to be pushed back 
and live into the abundance that Jesus desires for us in the kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just pray that you give the courage, give us the courage to live the kind of life you've called us to. May we see you with the eyes that Peter had as truthfully the true, as the true Messiah, as the one that brings life. Not like the way Pan brings life or anything else brings life, but that brings true, deep, meaningful kingdom kind of life. May we see you with those eyes. But then may we also let the implications of what that means sink deeply into our hearts. That if you, we believe you are the Messiah, that you've called us to follow you, what that, is, that isn't a path of conquest, but a path of self-sacrifice and humility. May we be the kind of people who live that kind of kingdom life so the world may see the beauty of the life and light that comes from you. Amen.